So we return to our long-standing study through the Gospel of John, and we come this morning to chapter 13. A chapter that begins with the deep love of Jesus Christ, our Lord. There are different kinds of love. From things trivial to things of utmost importance. I love bacon, for example. And sports and good movies. I love, around our family, we call it, I love sleep-in Saturdays which lasts till about 6.45 <laughs> because our littlest ones haven't yet grasped the concept of sleeping in. I love time spent with good friends. I love sharing life and conversation together. I love time spent alone with nothing but my thoughts to keep me company there is the love that I have for my wife and our five children. Uh, obviously a much more intimate love, much freer and fuller. And so whether it centers around food or, or pleasing experience or the relationships we enjoy, these various loves, I think, are common to us all. Of course, the specifics may change from person to person as depending upon our unique tastes, but in general, these kinds of love aren't particularly unusual. But there is another love that belongs only to some. It is love for God. Many people acknowledge God and even love the idea of God, but only some truly love God. Only they pursue Him. Only they obey Him. Only they fully trust Him. Only they fully entrust themselves to Him and order their lives around Him. In fact, their love for God is so prominent that it informs their, their other loves. I love my wife better because I love God supremely. I love my children more because I love God first and because I receive them as gifts from God. In other words, our love for God instructs us how to love. But there is an even higher love, an even greater love, as special as our love for God is, as great a gift as it is, there is a love infinitely more special. It is God's love for us. Specifically for those of us who are His. In fact, we love him only because he first loved us. And even then, we don't love him perfectly, just like we don't perfectly love one another. But his love for us is perfect in every way. 
and to every degree. So in coming to John 13, we come to the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Divine love. Divine love is the dominant theme in this chapter and all the chapters that follow. Love has been the theme in all the chapters that precede this one. The love of Christ has been the driving force behind everything that brought Jesus to this point in his earthly ministry, and it will remain so throughout the totality of his ministry, whether on earth or even now in heaven. For, for Jesus Christ loves his own in a personal way, in a very particular way, and he loves them unto perfection. I want to take just one verse this morning. When I first came to this passage, um, I was so excited, and I still am, to, to, to really discover with you just the, the, the beauty and the wonder of how, uh, how Jesus washes his disciples' feet. We'll do that next week. Because the more I read the passage, the more I just really couldn't get by verse 1. So we're just going to take one verse, verse 1. It frames all the verses that follow. But more than that, it frames the entire life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Let's read it together. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Let's pray. Father, our Heavenly Father, thank you for these um, moments we share, divinely appointed, in your presence and in your word. Thank you for the gift that is the church, the gift that is shared life and ministry together, the gift of shared and corporate worship, this great congregation of believers that transcends time and place, which no man can count. All of us drawn to you by your Spirit. All of us united to one another in love. What a gift. Thank you, Father, for your great care for your children. You know every joy represented in this room. You know every sorrow represented in this room. 
Nothing is hidden from you. You know it all. You know every detail of every circumstance. You know our, our triumphs. You know our trials. You know the things that cause our hearts to ache. You know the anxieties that circle around our minds, and you care. And you call us to cast our cares upon you. Because you are a compassionate God. You are patient. You are gracious. You are merciful. You are tender. You are love. And you have chosen to direct your divine attention toward us and upon us. So will you teach us this morning more of the love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord in such a way that would inspire and enliven and even ignite our love for Christ and our love for his work in this world. We bless you through his name. Amen. I want us to take this verse essentially in just two parts. I want us to consider what Jesus knew and what Jesus did. What Jesus knew and what Jesus did. We're told that Jesus knew that his hour had come. Throughout this gospel, whenever we hear of Christ's hour, it refers to the time of his death and resurrection. This scene takes place on the Thursday night before Good Friday. Just hours before his crucifixion. The cross was now less than one day away, and Jesus knew he was about to die. He knew he'd be betrayed, denied, and deserted by his close friends. He knew he'd be arrested, falsely accused, and beaten. He knew the scorn and injustice of it all. He knew just how merciless it would be. The brutality and the horrific agony. It was all so close now. So close that he could probably taste it, smell it. Christ knew exactly what awaited him, and he no doubt, I can't help but think, that he no doubt suffered it a million times over. You know, it's a blessing sometimes to not know what you do not know. In this case, to not know the sufferings you have yet to experience, the sufferings that await you. For if you knew, if you knew, if you knew what was coming to you, if you knew all the pain and heartache of days yet to be, if you knew it all right now, you'd be in constant despair. If you knew about tomorrow's troubles today, 
or next week's troubles or next month's troubles or next year's troubles. If you knew about tomorrow's troubles today, you'd be troubled not only tomorrow, you'd be troubled today. And so imagine with me, Jesus knew full well the full extent of his sufferings on the cross, but he knew full well the full extent of his suffering even before the cross. He knew these things full well from the very beginning. The cross was never a surprise to him. It didn't take him off guard. So he must have been crucified in his mind a million times over as he lived and walked among us. The weight of the cross, the the weight, the weight of the cross, the significance of it, and the weight leading up to the cross, the weight in terms of significance and the weight in terms of time must have been nearly unbearable. No wonder the prophet Isaiah wrote that Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Because the grief of the cross affected him not only at the cross, but in all the days that led to the cross. Jesus knew that his hour had come. But the cross, thankfully, the cross was not the end all. And he knew this too. The cross, whether rather, was a necessary step to something much greater. Thankfully, we're told, his, claw, his thoughts were not on the cross only. He was already looking beyond the cross to the great reunion with his Father in heaven. John says Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Hebrews 12.2 says that for the joy, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross despising its shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The prospect of returning to his heavenly father, the reality of which had now drawn very near, brought to Jesus uh, such joy that not even the cross could derail it. Even death itself and the brutal way by which he would die Uh, could not compare with the joy of reuniting with his heavenly father. His death at the hands of sinful men was the prescribed pathway to reunion with with his heavenly father. Jesus knew that his hour had come, and he also knew his home with his father with God. And he knew his purpose. He knew that his death for sin and sinners is the way by which we are reunited to God. By the way by which we can address God as Father. It's the way by which we are brought to our home in heaven. 
It's not by accident that John notes the Passover, making sure to explain that all this took place before the annual Passover feast. Passover, as many of you know, was the greatest of all the Jewish feasts. Celebrated each year, it was the most well-attended feast. People came from all over, near and far, in remembrance of what God had done uh, centuries prior in delivering the people of Israel from slavery and certain death. They were slaves in Egypt without hope, apart from God, but God determined to free them. Pharaoh tried to prevent it, but as you know, his obstinance only, brought, only plagued his own people, one plague after another, until the tenth plague, the plague of the firstborn. And so the people of Israel were told to take the blood of a lamb and spread it over the doorposts of their home, homes so that when the Lord swept through Egypt in His fierce wrath. They, those covered by the blood of the Lamb, would be graciously passed over. The sacrificial Lamb was for them a substitute. Its life was given for them. And now Jesus, the Lamb of God, these many years later would be sacrificed to save sinners from slavery to sin and certain death that owes to sin. He knew this is why he came. So in the last chapter, chapter 12, verse 27, he says, Now is my soul troubled. I'm troubled. By this. It's a whole sermon there. But what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. For this purpose I have come to this hour. Jesus knew he was to die a sinner's death at the hands of sinful men, though he himself was without sin. He knew. He'd bear sin and even become sin on the cross, and it troubled him. It troubled him. It troubled him. And yet, in the very next chapter, chapter 14, the very first words of that chapter, he's telling his disciples not to be troubled because he's going to prepare for them an eternal home with God. And so chapter 12 finds Jesus troubled. Well, in chapter 14, he's telling his followers not to be troubled. And that which stands between the two here in chapter 13 is his great love for them. In divine love for them, he, catch this, he he alleviated their trouble by assuming it himself. By adding to his own. It all pictures salvation. How, how Jesus is our great substitute, our Passover lamb. How he substituted himself for us in his death in order to save us from death and restore us to life with God in order to give us a home 
with God in heaven. Jesus knew his hour, Jesus knew his home, and Jesus knew his purpose in coming. At a moment when he had every right to be self-absorbed, right? Thinking about Judas's betrayal, thinking about his arrest on trumped-up charges, Peter's denial, the desertion of his close friends, the mockery of two trials, the injustice of it all, the brutality of it all, the agony of the cross, at a moment when he had every right to be self-absorbed, at a time when we would have given him every right to think about himself, to do whatever he needed to do to cope with what awaited him, Jesus instead was absorbed in love for others. Do you see that? If anyone had reason to be conscious of self, to think only of self, it was Jesus in these moments, but he wasn't thinking of himself. He was thinking of those he loved. There's no hint of bitterness. There's no resentment. Only love. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. His love. His love, therefore, was personal. It was particular. And it was perfecting. Having loved his own. His own. Very personal. Very, very endearing. They were his own because they were given to him by the Father. They were chosen by God and drawn to Christ by the Spirit of God. They belonged to Jesus according to God's eternal plan of salvation, even as God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we might be holy and blameless before Him. The love expressed here is not simply the, the general love of God for the world, but Christ's particular and personal love for them. I may have love for a whole host of men and women in a general sense, but there is only one woman on the face of the planet to whom I have pledged my undying love, my wife. I may, I may love children, all children, in a general sense, but the love I have for my own children is altogether unique. God has done some things for all people, that is, for everyone in the world. He has created them. He has sustained them. He has provided for them. He has protected them, even for a time, by His grace, from the full consequence of their sins. This is love for the world that indeed God has done some things for all people. But His love goes deeper still in that although God has done some things for all people, He has done all things for some people. They are His children. 
They are His own. They belong to Christ. They are born of the Spirit. They do not lack, nor never will lack, any of the eternal blessings afforded them through the Savior's love for them. You get me? And I want you to notice that he's not thinking about his own who are already in heaven. They were his own too. And he loved them dearly as well. The saints throughout all redemptive history that had died prior to the time of Christ were beloved by Jesus and belonged to Jesus, for they too were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. They too were ransomed by Christ's sacrifice on the cross. They too were secured by his resurrection from the grave. But here, Jesus isn't thinking about those already in heaven. He's thinking about those still in the world. He's thinking about his sheep, his flock. We are like sheep. We are his sheep. But we are sheep, we're told, amidst wolves. There are thieves and there are wolves that care nothing for the sheep who come only to steal and kill and destroy. And so like Romans 8, which we read earlier, where Paul quotes Psalm 44, assuring us that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, even though in this world we're often regarded as sheep being led to slaughter. So his heart goes out to those who are still in the world because he understands the unique struggles they have. And certainly you've already picked up on the fact that this is us. This is how he loves us. He loves us just as he loved those in that room because we are his own and because we are in the world, we're still in the world just as they were. We may think we're somewhat distant from Jesus, but we are as near and dear to him as Peter or James or John. For we belong to him too, and he loves his own, and he has a particular love for his own who are still in the world. He understands the world and how cruel the world can be, so he loves us and meets us smack dab in the middle of it. Every detail and circumstance, every nuance of your life in this world is saturated by the Savior's love for his own. And he will not stop loving his own. His love is not only personal and particular, but perfecting as well. Having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. The words to the end, they speak of an unbreakable love, a constant and completing love or a perfecting love. They refer both to time and capacity, meaning that Jesus loves his own infinitely and to the fullest extent. What he begins to love, he loves fully. And he loves forever. His love for his own in this world is demonstrated by what he says and does in the remaining chapters. But if we just take a quick preview, a quick glance down the road, the remaining chapters of the Gospel of John, we find that the love of Christ serves us, cleanses us, 
as evidenced by the foot washing here in chapter 13. It's exemplary love that calls us to love. And like Peter, it endures even through our many denials. It's love that paves the way and prepares your place with God in heaven, as we see in chapter 14. It's love that promises the helper, the Holy Spirit, who comes to indwell His own, so that wherever you are, Jesus is there with you, never to leave or forsake you. It's His love that brings peace in the midst of trouble. In chapter 15, it's love that enables and empowers you to live a fruitful life before God in this world. Jesus himself is the vine and you are the branches. And as we abide in him, we bear much fruit. This abiding, loving relationship affects our prayers. It affects our obedience to God. It affects our love for others. It reassures you of your union with Christ so that even when the world hates and opposes you, you can rest in the fact and draw strength from the fact that it hated and opposed Christ first. In chapter 16, the love of Christ uh, perseveres and keeps you from falling away. It's patient love and full of promise. It's triumphant love. So that even in times of tribulation, we have victory in Christ who has overcome the world. It's prayerful love. Jesus' prayer, His high priestly prayer in John 17, reveals a love that is protective and unifying and full of hope. In fact, in that prayer, He draws us into Trinitarian love. In other words, we are drawn up and included into the divine love expressed between Father, Son, and Spirit. I don't even understand that. It's far beyond me. Chapter 18, it's steadfast love as Jesus is betrayed, arrested, tried unjustly. Chapter 19, it's sacrificial love as he's crucified and dies in our place. And chapter 20, it's love made secure as he rises from the dead in absolute victory. In chapter 21, it's love that forgives and restores a man to God. Remember his interactions with Peter? that forgives and restores a man to God and guides him in the life of God. It's love that leads and beckons us to follow. All this to convey that Jesus Christ loves His own, not just for a moment in time, but with an everlasting love. He loved these disciples before the foundation of the world. Hear this. He loved them when He first met them. He loved them when He called them. He loved them as they walked with Him. He loved them even when they failed Him, when they questioned Him, when they didn't get what He was trying to teach them. He loved them not because they were lovable necessarily, but because they were His. He loved them not because they were perfect, but because He was. And He loved them unto perfection. And so, dear East Parkway, how will you respond to this great, great love of Christ? That was my question. 
Lord, is there application here? What's the application here? Lord, please, what's the application? And then I thought of this. It's no wonder that the Apostle John, the author of this gospel, from this point forward, from this point forward, begins to refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. You ever thought about that? You ever thought about why that is? It's not, it's not, it's me, it's me. I'm the disciple Jesus loved. It's not that. It's not, he loved me more than the others. It's not that. Instead, I think John's saying something like, I can't believe cannot believe that, that I, even I, am the disciple whom Jesus loved. I think he was so moved, so touched, so deeply affected by the love of Christ for him that he's saying, even I, with all my baggage, with all my weakness, with all my sin and imperfection, even I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. And from this point forward, this is how he began to identify himself. In other words... He began to see himself as Christ saw him. He began to see himself from Christ's divine perspective. Maybe that's our application. Maybe the take home for you this morning is to see yourself from Christ's perspective. If you, if you believe in Jesus, don't think of His love for you as a generalized love or like the love He has for the world. Know instead that His love for you is deeply personal. It is particular to your unique situation and He will love you to perfection. Hallelujah. This love takes you captive and it doesn't let go. Like marriage. I'm thinking of Ephesians 5. It's the closest relationship on earth that we can try to describe. Like marriage, it, it's for better or worse, it's richer or poorer, it's in sickness and in health, it's covenantal love between you and God, uh, realized in Jesus Christ himself, love that sanctifies and cleanses and will one day present you blameless before God as you are welcomed to your eternal home. <laughs> See yourself 
from Christ's perspective. If you're not a believer in Jesus, I just want to ask sincerely something that just kind of comes out of all that, that, that I've been saying and I think all that's tucked away in this verse, if you're not a believer in Jesus, why not? If Jesus loves his own like this, how could you ever turn away? I said at the start, this is the highest and greatest love imaginable, God's love for us. Your spouse cannot love you like this. Your children cannot love you like this. Your parents cannot love you like this. Neither your closest friends nor your, the, the, the nearest and dearest members of your family can love you like this. Only Jesus Christ can love you like this. It is the love of God for you through Christ our Lord. So you also, you also need to see yourself from Christ's divine perspective. One day, you will appear before God. We all will. And in that day, the question will be relatively simple. Are you Christ's? Do you belong to Him? Are you one of His own? Have you experienced his personal love for you? Have you, have you received his particular love for you? Have you are, are you the object of his perfecting love? Without this, you are lost and without hope. And so come to Jesus, receive his love, and live. This verse is a window into his heart, and, and if, as an expression of your love for him, if, if you would open your heart to trust and follow him, you will receive not only the Savior's love, but the loving Savior himself. Jesus Christ loves his own. He loves them personally. He loves them particularly. And he loves them unto perfection. Amen. God, we thank you for your great, great, great love for us through Christ our Lord. Will you make us um, people who rest and revel in this love? Help us to receive him who is love and to rely upon him day by day. For only in the love of God can we love God and love others as God would have us. So would you bless each person here, man, woman, young, old, 
and draw them by your love into this great and deep abiding, joyful, gracious, peace-saturated relationship with Christ. For his name's sake, amen.